Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. A few weeks back, we released a new report, The Sky is Rising. Uh, we did that in partnership with the CCIA Research Center. Uh, the report is a deep dive all about the state of the entertainment industries and also the role of the internet and how those industries are changing and adapting and growing. Uh, if you've been following Tech Turt and our think tank, the Copia Institute, for any amount of time, you're probably aware that we've been releasing Sky is Rising reports every few years going back to 2012 when we released the first such report. This latest report expanded what we've previously covered and also looked at how the COVID pandemic impacted those industries as well. Uh, also, for the very first time, we looked at how artificial intelligence and generative AI in particular is starting to impact the various industries as well. And obviously, we expect that to continue to progress quite a bit in the next few years. Uh, Corbin Barthold from the Tech Policy Podcast asked myself and the co-author on the paper, Lee Beaton, to come on the on his podcast to talk about the report. So this week, we are releasing that podcast on our feed as well, talking all about how the sky is rising. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical, bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle, stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us, facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll, document the ways that they aim to take control, scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Mike Masnick and Lee Beaton are here. Mike, as most of our listeners will know, is the founder and grand poobah of Tech Dirt. Lee is an editor at Tech Dirt. Mike and Lee are the authors of a new edition of The Sky is Rising, a detailed look at the state of the entertainment industries. This report, put out by CCIA and the Copia Institute, offers a complete look at how people are listening, watching, reading, and playing in the internet era. In this latest entry in the series, Mike and Lee serve up a lot of good news. They find that we are in a true golden age of culture. There is more content being produced than ever before. More people are creating content. More people are consuming content in many different forms. And on the industry side, more money is being spent than ever before. The sky, they write, is truly rising. I run into a lot of techno-pessimism these days and in particular, pessimism about technology's effect on art and entertainment. I keep reading that culture is stagnant or decaying or dying, and that technology is to blame in some way or other. The internet especially is destroying culture. All the highbrow people tell me so. But I can't say that I run into much evidence for this proposition. Denunciations of the internet tend to be based on anecdotes and vibes. So what I especially appreciate about the sky is rising is that it is detailed and evidence rich. I look forward to discussing it. Mike, Lee, welcome. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, having for having us. us. We're always excited to talk about this stuff. I promise we'll do a more granular breakdown by category. But just to start, would one of you like to give the high-level summary of uh, the skies rising? Yeah, and and I think it's it's worth pointing out that this is you know we've done this report a few times in the past, going back about a dozen years, and when we first did this report, it was in sort of the the height of the freak out over that the internet was killing culture, and in particular, the recording and movie industries were you know uh, leading the charge and saying that the internet was terrible and was destroying stuff and there was going to be no more culture and nobody was going to produce because the internet was just all full of piracy and awful stuff and for a variety of reasons that felt 
wrong to us. But again, uh, you know, like you, we were concerned about, let's not just go on vibes, like, let's actually look at the research. And, you know, one of the key things that we did with that original report, and then going forward with the feature reports was to actually look at the industry's own research and what they were saying, you know, there's what they say publicly to, you know, the media and to politicians, but then there are like financial reports that they put out and other details that were, were suggesting a very different story. And so, you know, we started to go through that. And what we found early on in that original report was that there were parts of the industry that were struggling and they were generally the parts that where they were facing competition from the internet and that was creating new things. But if you looked, if you took a step back and you looked at the overall space and the overall market and what people were interested in, what they were spending on and what they were consuming and interacting with and engaging with, it just kept showing like the market is, is changing, but it is not being destroyed and it is not going away. And so this was, you know, over the years, we've occasionally done updates. And so this, the 2024 version of it was our latest update to look at how all this, you know, all, all of this had played out in part also interested in sort of what happened during the period of COVID lockdowns and other things that might've impacted uh, this market as well. And what we found was that again, you know, as we said, the sky is rising, that the, the, the entertainment industry in all sorts of ways and the culture industries are thriving. And that's almost in any direction that you look at it from in terms of, you know, do con consumers have access to more and better content, more variety of content, more content that they enjoy? And the, the indications are absolutely yes. Um, and then there's the question on the other side, are people able to make money from that because that's a, you know those are two separate but in in many ways related concerns and again what we found was yes that the industries are actually thriving as well and in many cases the the thing that we found for both sides of that was that it was the internet that was enabling all of that and creating all of these opportunities for both sides both the the creators and and the and the consumers of or of the content as well as the industries behind it were really able to thrive and it was really often uh, very much because of of the internet so the the original story that you know is still being told that the internet is somehow destroying culture just doesn't seem to be supported by the actual evidence yeah as you write the internet creates a quote win 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 between creators consumers and the industries that enable them and What's perhaps most interesting about the report to me, not only that sort of the top line numbers go up in category after category after category, but that you see an almost evolutionary adaptation. Things shift mm -hmm. around and, you know, people aren't stagnant. They figure out ways to make money, to create art, to use technology to their advantage. And the most the quintessential case of internet destroying culture we heard years ago was the recording industry. Everybody remembers, you know, Napster. And I think that's therefore the best category to start with here. I am not a close follower of the music industry. So actually the chart that you have in there of the recording industry revenue was really remarkable because I remember all of the sky is falling narratives about that. And then, you know, I don't pay much attention to it. And I open up your report and there's this remarkable <laughs> U-shape curved on the revenue. During all of the time that I wasn't paying attention, they got their act together. They figured out how to make, make a living and do their thing. Uh, we can turn maybe also to how it's, it's better. Like not only are they now making more money than ever, but the experience is better. So could you dig into as sort of using the recording industry as a case study, what is the adaptation and then what is the result? Yeah. And and so this is, I think it's a really interesting and important case study to understand because there, there are a couple elements to it. One is that the recording industry, and it's important to call it out as the recording industry and not the music industry. The recording industry is a piece of the music industry. And this was something that we highlighted in, in our original report and, and subsequent reports. The recording industry likes to present itself as the whole of the music industry. Uh, and that is, has always been inaccurate. 
they are one piece of it. And, and often uh, the recording industry is the piece that works very hard to not pay the, the actual creators. So that's a little bit of, of an aside. And so they definitely struggled. And, and, you know, through the early part of the 2000s, you know, their business model had been based almost entirely for decades on selling physical product, whether it was vinyl records or cassette tapes and then CDs. And so they struggled mightily with the rise of the internet and they were not sure how to deal with it. So, you know, you could see the decline. And so there is this in the recording industry, there is definitely a decline in revenue, though some of the other parts of their revenue streams began to expand. And there were experiments and sort of in the around 2010 or so, there was definitely an increase in digital download sales, which was mainly driven by iTunes, sort of created this, this entire market for digital download sales. But around that time is when licensed streaming services began to come into, into play. And the most notable of that is Spotify. And then there have been, there, there are some others these days. Apple Music is big, though that started as Beats Music. And there was uh, Deezer and Pandora and a few others of these services. And those have grown absolutely massively. And to the point that they are now providing revenue that makes up what what the industry had before to, to a significant amount. And they do so without much of the overhead costs that the recording industry used to, to have in place before. I mean, before they would have to make the physical products, they would have to distribute the physical products. And all of these things effectively went away with, with streaming. And so now the recording industry itself, the sort of the quintessential example of an industry being destroyed by by the internet is now making even more money than they were before because of the internet. And that's not to say that there aren't concerns about how that market works now. And, and certainly people have raised concerns about how equitable the revenue flows are from the industry. And like Spotify now is, has just made some changes in how they're paying artists, which are raising some, some significant concerns. There are a bunch of other things, but the, the story that we were told for so long about the internet destroying the recorded music industry and that because of piracy, nobody would ever pay for music again is simply not true. And in fact, those, those organizations are now making more money with fewer employees directly within the, within the record labels themselves, in part because they don't have the same level of overhead that they had before. So the, the industry is, is thriving again because of the internet. And it's like, Win, 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 as you said. I mean, so artists can break in without going through a recording label. Uh, Little Nas X being a great example of that, of somebody who broke into music by social media. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I, if I were some connoisseur of music, I would purchase maybe physical records the way I am with books that I still purchase physical books, but I'm not. I'm a casual music listener. And now uh, for a flat fee, I have the universe of music at my fingertips. I actually, I, I almost sound like an innocent here in saying this, but it's just <laughs> fantastic. I'm constantly thinking this is so cool when I pull up music while I'm cooking. I don't know why, uh, maybe I sound naive, but like, that's <laughs> awesome. It's it's the, it's the old uh, Louis C.K. I don't know if he's still canceled or not, but his thing of like, you're in a chair in the sky, you know, <laughs> right. for airplanes. Yes. Um, Lee, do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I mean, you know, to what you were just saying, that's something I, I say a similar thing all the time, because yes, like a lot of this stuff is amazing. And I think that connects far beyond music to just the internet in general. And a lot of the fights over like controlling content on the internet, whether it's through copyright primarily or other means or whatnot, is that when you get down to it, like we built this extraordinary global machine and the only thing it can do is like send copies of data or of media or whatever other data to other places in the world. That's literally the only thing the internet does, make copies of data and send it everywhere. So of course we use it to just make everything we like available everywhere, you know, uh, music, movies. And for so long, yeah, the industry fought against this. I mean, we talk about it being a win, 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 and it is. But of course, there are certainly going to be people who don't feel it was a win for them if they like when they had more control themselves over what gets made, how it gets distributed, where it goes, how much it costs, you know, that 
that control has been decentralized and stripped away from, you know, the same handful of parties that decided if a record got made and anyone heard it kind of thing. So so they might not see it as a win, even though ultimately it has turned out to be one. But yeah, to what you're saying, yeah, it is amazing. And we built the tool to do it. So of course we're going to do it. It's going to happen one way or another. And if it doesn't happen through, you know, businesses innovating and making that stuff available to people, people are going to find other ways to make it happen through piracy or or what have you, because that's what the machine that is the internet does. The one thing I would add to that too, is like, I hear from some people who sort of, you know, miss the the sort of nostalgia effect of like hunting through a record store for, for certain things. And and like I, I was one of those people. Like I, I had the great secret record stores that had like the basement you could go into and find the really good stuff. And like the record store employees who who knew who I was and would be like, "Oh, you should, you you got to check out this band. Like you'll love them and all this kind of stuff." And like that was fun. But honestly, like the fact that I can sit down in my house and just like pull up whatever <laughs> whatever I want and get recommendations. Like you know, I've been listening to stuff lately that were like these like random like eastern european bands that i was never going to come across even in any of those like basement you know record store basements that i went through you know decades ago because you know spotify is is seeing what it is that i'm interested in and recommending like these other these other bands that are amazing and would never get any airtime otherwise and i would never find out about them and so you know i i think it is it is kind of incredible it's opened up this sort of you know the the more global experience i mean going back to like searching through record store basements my my greatest ever find uh in a record store basement was this album that i had been looking for for years which was it was a band from los angeles but they had for whatever reason only put out their album in japan and i was desperate for a copy of it and and years went by where i was trying to get it and i finally found one in a basement in in a record store and it was like the most thrilling thing in the world. And, you know, now that album is on Spotify, like I can just call it up. <laughs> and so. And look to, to that as well, you know, the record store basement still exists and yep. the degree to which it less exists. The, that's a much bigger topic to do with what's changed <laughs> in retail and the Internet in a larger sense. We can't just put that all at the feet of the Internet's impact on music, you know. Not everything is is digitized on Spotify. There are still weird, obscure records that yeah. never got a full pressing or whatever that people can go hunting for. And there's a whole new version of digging, which is, you know, digging through the weird stuff in a community of creators on SoundCloud, yep. uh, seeing what some subreddit where creators share their stuff is doing. There's there are so many other places to do that same digging through the obscure, yeah. just going to the Internet Archive, as we do for our public domain thing sometimes and looking up old, weird archived stuff that you would never think of to look at, you know, or, or even, you know, honestly, like, you know, these days, Bandcamp to me is is that right? I mean, there's a whole amazing amount of of music found on Bandcamp, which is not available on Spotify. Yeah, but we do but, have to hope Epic doesn't destroy it. But yes, that's a whole that's, other that's conversation. Like, <laughs> but yes, I Bandcamp has been my choice way of getting music for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, just to your point, like we're in this amazing time where there's so much like I am constantly discovering new music. And like, I'm at the age where I'm not supposed to be discovering new music, I'm supposed to be set in my ways and remembering the bands that I loved in, in high school or whatever. But I'm still finding all this kind of music. And I think if 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 it were still the way it was before, and I would have to go to record stores, like I wouldn't be doing that, I would be just listening to the albums that I listened to as a high school student. So it's it's really an incredible time, I think. So much of the report reads as yes, and we have all the good stuff that was before and then plus new options and rant incoming here. I was going to maybe save it for later, but Kyle Cheka has a new book out called Filter World, and he gets into a lot of the the position we're sort of taking kicks at here. I mean, I, I wrote a pretty dyspeptic review of it. And ultimately, a lot of his nostalgia, you mentioned, for instance, the the joy that comes with deprivation the thing comes on the tv and you love it and then you can't find it and it's hard and then you finally find it later and maybe that's the one thing that is a little bit diminished that is a very small price to pay because his larger argument is you know i want to get back to the searching for the albums in the store kind of vibe and it's like look 
what you're actually saying is you want that model to be hegemonic. You want to take away all the convenient ways and all the other ways to do things and force everybody to do that. Whereas you can still do that. I mean, <laughs> I, you can still be the person who heard the band play before it was cool without having to wreck things in a way <laughs> that everybody has to live that way. And that Mike, I, you know, you brought in age and I think that's so accurate. I mean, I, I'm like a father of three with a job. I don't have time to be the guy in the record store basement, but now I can still have Spotify help me with that. And some of the complaints are just so sort of facile that because it's more convenient, you're not going to take time with an album and really let it sink in. It's like, no, you can still do yeah, that too. I, I still listen to albums mostly. Like I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not I, a sheep. I can use the algorithm yeah. <laughs> to find new things. I can also listen to a whole album. I am a grown ass adult. I'm capable of both. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I, look at, no. oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. I was going to say, I like, I, I heard an interview with Kyle just last night, actually. And I was listening. He was talking about Filter World. Uh, and he was going on about, you know, yeah, the algorithm is terrible because it's it's not human and it's not like recommending the stuff that you actually want. It's it's giving you this sort of like, you know, bland nothingness. And I was just like, like, I still get recommendations for music from friends who know my tastes and those are good. And the fact is, like, the world is so much easier now because when I get a recommendation from a friend, I don't have to go hunting for it. I, I can call it up on Spotify or YouTube or wherever and like find that music and listen to it and be like, oh yeah, this is really good. I want to go listen to that whole album now. So I don't, I don't fully understand the complaint that like, because friends or people or, or word of mouth like still exists and works with the algorithm as well. And so like even that, like I, I had a, a friend a friend that I've known like around music for many, many years who every once in a while will just say, Hey, have you heard these guys? I just came across this. And, and there was one that I had listened to recently and Spotify then recommended other artists that were similar. And so like, I ended up finding a whole bunch of new music, which started with a personal recommendation and then the algorithm enhanced it. And so there are all of these examples that I, I don't like, you know, I don't see how this is harmful in any way. And I think the, you know, part of what the report shows is that people in general agree. You can make cases that, you know, because look, thing, things do change. The nature of how we like distribute and create culture and how the industry works does change, you know, the incentives change the nature of what culture gets created and what becomes popular. That happens all the time. And you can make arguments that certain aspects of how things work today have had diminishing impacts on certain types of culture. It's fine. That's, you know, a matter of opinion that people can hold. And I might even agree with it in some things. There are some things that don't get created now the way they used to that I might, you know, whatever. Right. But I mean, a to bring it back to the question of like the sky is rising report and looking at some of these numbers and stuff, it's you know, apart from making that case and maybe calling for people to pay some attention to different areas of culture, what what really is the solution? Like we can't, you can't legislate or regulate the quality or the type of culture that, you know, gets created and consumed, you know, that's a futile path, I think, for the most part to try to go down. And so, you know, yeah, sometimes you're nostalgic for some stuff and sometimes it might even be a genuine shame that some of those things have, have been lost or changed. But A, there's probably new things that are just as exciting and B, you know, yeah, sometimes stuff changes. And, and if there's things like, you know, if you want more record shops and more indie bands to go see and more music to discover before it's on Spotify, ah, that probably has more to do with like the cost of living in the city you live in than it does with anything to do with the Internet and technology. Right. Like these things are, you know, culture is influenced by a million factors and the, the distribution methods and business models are just one of them. Yeah. And I and, mean, and, we're talking on a podcast right now, <laughs> right? Right. And like there was a time when when the options were a few AM radio stations, we would not be having a listenership. I mean, I am an average person. This podcast is going to be listened by probably like low thousands, which is fantastic because it's exactly that niche. It's a thing that would not exist in if you want to call it, you know, pre-filter world <laughs> yeah podcasts are such a perfect example because it is like a it's you know i mean yes it's a continuation of the concept of radio but it has very much become a medium in and of itself like there's you know content in podcasts that would have never been content on the radio and it's just yeah it's a it's a whole medium 
with an extremely low barrier to entry with lots of people doing it, surprising number of them making at least some money doing it and and many of them coming from obscurity to make it their career, uh, you know, all just completely out of thin air because of the Internet. Right. Um, you know, yeah. none of this existed before. And just two two points on that. One is that like like I listen to some music podcasts that, you know, are not you know, algorithmically generated, but recommend different music and play different bands. And, and, you know, some of them, I'm not even sure, like, I would guess that they're, they may, might be considered infringing themselves and that they're playing music probably without licenses, but they're wonderful methods of, of music discovery. And then the second thing is that, you know, we, we included for the first time in the skies rising report, we included podcast information as well. And, and, you know, one of the things that we did this year is that we did change the report around a little bit. It used to be focused on like uh, the different industries. So we had like, you know, a music chapter. And this year we changed that to a listening chapter because we were recognizing how these markets are changing and including things like podcasts that people are, for some people, podcast is a podcasting is a substitute for listening to music. People listen to podcasts instead or audiobooks or other things as well. And so we wanted to to take that into account. And so we actually have some data in the report on the the rise of the podcasting market as well, which, you know, has has cooled off a little bit. I think it got really, really big during the pandemic when nobody had anything to do. So everybody started a podcast and everybody started listening to like 20 podcasts, but it it has cooled off a little bit, but it's still this whole market space that, you know, didn't exist you know, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago. And so it's, it's really incredible. I vividly remember on uh, long car trips when I was like 19, 20 in college, listening to fundamentalist preachers on AM radio, <laughs> because just that was something interesting and entertaining given my options. And to compare that to my ability to access information that is relevant to me now uh, via podcasts, I hope people hear that trade and think it sounds yeah. good instead of the, well, in my day, I, I listened <laughs> to the fundamentalist preacher and it gave me character and I was better because I was deprived and that was my best option. And look, I do think, you know, the gutting of local radio is a shame. I think that's a good example of like a piece of culture that's been lost and that that is unfortunate. And I even and I understand some of the nostalgia some people have for it, too. I've heard people talk about, hey, yeah, you used to drive through the U.S. and every county you pass through, you'd tune into a new local radio station and hear what their thing was. I, I get the romance and the nostalgia of that. But also, I do think like local radio was cool and it's been largely gutted. You know, there's not nearly as many shows, not nearly as many career paths in it, et cetera. The stations are all consolidated under big networks. Most of that was like well underway, well before yes. the Internet started replacing radio. Like that was, you know, I mean, the, the Simpsons was making jokes about how that was happening to radio stations in like 1993. You know, the guys being replaced by a robot radio DJ instead of them. So, you know, that's uh, I, I think podcasts have actually actually rose in a lot of ways to fill a hole that was already created by the death of local radio. They didn't cause it. Yeah. Well, you talked, Lee, about things dying and things springing up. And so we can take these in either order, but I, I'd like to discuss one potential dying and one springing up. And the dying connects to directly to what you said. I think a lot of people who maybe don't share our mindset would very much want to hear us discuss journalism and what's going on with uh, local news as a potential uh, loss. And then, Lee, I, I really want to hear from you about video games, because I feel like video games is having such a renaissance and people who maybe think that culture is flattening, quote unquote, that's a huge one. They're missing the amount of creative energy that is going into a new art form. Which way do we want to take? <laughs> I, I mean, you could definitely start with the journalism one because it does link to directly what I was just saying. That pattern in local radio has been the pattern in local news television and in local newspapers. And also what I said about it starting well before the Internet was changing yes. those industries is also true. Like the mass consolidation of small journalism was well underway at the hands of big publishing networks um, before, you know, the Internet crisis, which is not to pretend there wasn't a bit of a crisis for journalism caused by the Internet. But, uh, you know, again, part of it was journalism was actually in a weaker position to handle that, I think, because so much of it 
had been already or was in the process of being like consolidated and financialized in these big ways that, you know, demanded annual returns and couldn't weather uh, a transitional period. Do you think yeah. maybe we're just he- heading towards the bottom of the U for journalism in the way that we are doing with recording? Is that a potential way to think about this? Um, I, I mean, I, th- I think so. I think, um, and I don't, I have no idea how Lee feels about this, but like the, you know, my sense is that journalism, you know, the, the, the sort of publishers, uh, and, and, you know, business people behind journalism misread the changing market and they misread their own market pretty badly over the last couple of decades. Obviously, journalism is incredibly important. I say that as a journalist, right? You know, like I find journalism super important and journalism business models absolutely fascinating. Um, and understanding how they work is really important. But there was this sense among some in the journalism space that like journalism defied market incentives entirely. And that because it was like so vital that it should just magically exist and and be supported. Um, and that's not the way the world works. And, and related to that, you know, my argument has always been that local newspapers in particular, their real product was was community that they were bringing together a local community and because they were the one place where you could bring together that local community they could then sell the eyeballs right so there were subscriptions uh that made some money but the real money was made in in advertising and classified advertising often um that that was just bringing together a community based around a geography and so I've always thought that news organizations should think of themselves as community organizers first. And, you know, the journalism part of it is is part of what makes that that community effort make sense. But instead, as newspapers try to adjust to the internet, rather than thinking of themselves as bringing together community, they really leaned in on like, we are just journalists. We provide news, news is valuable, therefore, we need to put up paywalls, which harms the community aspect. We should, you know, make it more difficult to access our news, or we should overload it with annoying ads and and not really, you know, take away comments if they have comments, and do all of these things that are not helping the community aspect, so that the the people who historically, you know. Uh, really relied on and valued local news have found other places to get it. And often that is the internet. And so I think it's always been a real failure of news organizations to recognize how much they have to do on the community building side of it. And there are some efforts underway to, to try to fix that or change that. And it's, we're very much in the experimentation side, but I think that people do value news and community together and therefore there is there is a real opportunity for those who figure out how to do it right yeah and i i would say yeah i agree with all of that i i don't know that i'm like optimistic that journalism is at the bottom of you you know i mean it's the the journalism industry is having a lot of problems right now like it is it is in crisis that's absolutely true i also like i'm in canada our journalism industry is even more consolidated than america's is um you know and we've had you know one of our national newspapers just closed its physical newsroom permanently the the national newspaper owners own a lot of the local newspapers and are closing them down or starving them of resources and all all this stuff you know like there are problems there it's it's a difficult question. And again, it's one of those things where it's been going on for a long time. I mean, I went to journalism school in the early 2000s when it was like like the last gasp of the old journalism industry. And yeah. so much that we were taught in year one was obsolete by year three like because of how much the industry was changing at that time. I, I go back to uh, Clay Shirky, who's a great commenter on journalism, who's writing a lot about it, like around the 2009, 2010 era, you know, and a core point that he made was that like the model for funding journalism never made any sense. It was just a thing that happened to work. And he describes it as, you know, writing about the Dallas Cowboys so that the local Ford dealership will give you money that you can use to fund the guy in the city desk to go to city council meetings yeah, for I've the 2% as, of your um, readers who read that. Like, you know. I've heard it as the, the crossword puzzle funds the Baghdad Bureau. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's like, it never made sense. It just happened to work. And it would largely happen to work because there was 
limited distribution channels. So you bun you had to bundle all these things together. It was the only way to distribute them. You know, you had to yeah. bundle sports and entertainment and crosswords and the news and everything. And the internet destroyed the rationale for that bundling. There was no longer any reason. It doesn't even like, why do we even still have one organization that has a sports section and a politics section only because of inertia? Because once upon a time, that made a lot of sense for the same organization to be doing both those things. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult. A lot of things have changed. I, I don't have I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about where the future of journalism or claim to have answers for how the industry is going to be fixed. It, it is a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to see. I do see the experimentation out there. I do see journalists coming together in, I guess you could call it a co-op form. Mm -hmm. I myself am, am increasingly willing to pay subscription money to outlets that I think are doing good work. But uh, time, time will tell. Lee. Let's shift to optimism, though. Um, video games. Sure. I mean, it, it's tough. <laughs> it's funny. It's because it, I am largely I do mostly have positive things to say, but it has to be acknowledged up front that the game industry also is like seems to be entering a bit of a crisis phase. There have been a bunch of like high profile mass layoffs at major games companies in just the past few weeks, even. And like um, and, you know, there have obviously that's been predated by there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, how sustainable the industry is, at least at some of the highest levels with the AAA developers, both in terms of like work conditions and uh, for their employees and then, yeah, their funding models. And they've been, you know, canceling some games and having massive layoffs. So there actually are signs that the big side of the video games industry is entering its own little bit of a crisis phase. So I want to acknowledge that up front. But to bring it back to the optimism side of it, I mean, you know, the indie video game revolution that sort of hit a little over a decade now, you know, and, and just sort of this explosion of small independent creators, even solo developers, small publishers releasing games that became massively popular and that expanded what the medium of gaming could do and sort of got gaming finally the recognition as like a art form worthy of criticism and consideration. I mean, that all happened entirely because of the internet and it's all still going strong, right? Like anyone can make a game and sell it. The The internet provides so much for every step of that process um, from like learning how to do it to like obtaining the tools that you need to do it um, to, you know, finding people to collaborate with or purchasing things you need to include in your game through to publishing it and selling it is like, you know, all a power that anybody has access to that like didn't, you know, exist at all. Uh, I don't I'm forgetting the exact timeline now, but you know, 12, 13 years ago, there wasn't any such thing. <laughs> yeah. Somebody mentioned to me the other day, like uh, Nvidia stock went down like 10%. I'm like, Oh, well, it's like a 10% drop on like a thousand percent rise. Uh, <laughs> and that's how I feel about the video game industry. When you, when you talk to me about that, I mean, cause my being a uh, embodied human uh, of the geriatric millennial generation, you know, video games for me, you have a friend over and you play duck hunt. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so even, and this is old news, the ability to treat video games as community across the internet wows me. Uh, and then increasingly, and I, man, am I showing my age here, but just the, uh, the cinematic quality, the degree to which video games are immersive stories on the level of a high quality novel or a, or a movie. Again, showing my age, but that is entirely new to me and very impressive. And I have not been catching enough discussion of that in all of these Jeremiads uh, that I will turn to in a moment about flattening culture. I mean, it's the it's technologically extraordinary what some of the high end games do, like like Naughty Dog is the studio that makes a bunch of the like uh, makes The Last of Us and a bunch of the really incredibly detailed AAA games that, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you watch what goes into making some of that. And it's like, you know, someone's whole job for weeks was to like model the physics of how a rope moves when you're swinging around one end of it and stuff like that to get all these and, you know, little corners that used to be cut in games, a lot of games you know, are starting to fill them in where it's like, yeah, if you pick up an item, it doesn't just disappear off the ground and appear. Now we've made the animation of you bending down to pick it up. Not, not all games do that and not all should, but I, yeah, I do. It's fascinating when you see one of those projects fully come together. That is the segment of the industry that is 
hitting some of the walls I was talking about at the beginning, because it is it is those largest, you know, triple A budget massive developers with gigantic teams of hundreds and hundreds of people where you do face, you know, some pretty serious uh, allegations about how they treat their employees. And we have now seen, you know, some pretty big layoffs and stuff in that. So there are issues there, but no, I mean, I agree what's been achieved with games is amazing. It's funny though. Like to me, I actually think a lot of the more interesting stuff isn't even that incredibly expensive, immersive cinematic stuff. It is the smaller projects and the indie studios or the mid-sized studios who are less focused on that high fidelity stuff and are more focused on like exploring what they can it's, do it's with the, gameplay uh, it's the and this design. podcast of video games. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I mean, basically to your point, yeah, Matt, an, an entire creative an entire creative medium that has like, you know, we haven't even seen all of where it's going to go yet. It's as we mentioned in the sky's rising report, it's unique amongst the segments we cover because all of the other ones have a very long pre-internet history, books, music, movies all existed for different lengths of times, but long, long before the internet with well-established video games, not, Really? I mean, a little bit. There were, you know, people playing Space Invaders in the arcade and a lot of people probably had Pong on their home TV long before they had an, uh, you know, an Internet connection or even, you know, I had. Yeah. Kids had Nintendos and Duck Hunt before they had a local Internet connection. But for the most part, video games and the Internet have risen alongside each other and have always been a part of each other's existence, which does make it unique compared to the other the other areas in the report. I, I, I do think also that, like, you know, when you talk about the the quality and fidelity of some of these games too like it is worth noting that in some ways they've become both complementary and substitutes for some of the other contents like you know do you go watch a movie that will be an hour and a half or do you play a video game that's going to take you a few weeks to go through the entire thing and so there's some interesting developments there in terms of like how do people think about the more immersive interactive experience of video games as compared to more passive versions of, you know, sit back and and have this content come to you for an hour or two. And very much the community side as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, if you look at giant hits, like, you know, especially some of the big ones that younger people play a lot. So like Fortnite and Minecraft and Roblox and stuff, like they are a, a big, probably the central chunk of those is like the community aspect and the the kids are doing it with their friends. Um, you know? Yeah. I think, I think that's huge. And, and even related to that also is that, you know, the whole rise of, of streaming culture where, you know, people streaming themselves playing video games and other people watching them is just kind of a fascinating thing, which I don't think anyone really predicted, but has become a, a huge market in its own way. Yeah, and it's a very easy thing to, as many people predictably did, to like roll your eyes at and brush off. But there is clearly something there, right? And it's better to better to try to understand it than to just dismiss yeah. it. No, absolutely. I, I checked that out at one point on Twitch and definitely had a sort of, I don't quite understand it, it but it is vaguely entertaining and I can see why uh, somebody, to use my weird, like embodied in a different generation, I I... I didn't find it. uh, I wasn't appalled. I wasn't scandalized. (laughs) Let me bombard you guys with some quotes here because I feel like the goalposts have been shifted on you. I feel like when you came out with the first Skies Rising report, the two sides, if you will, to make that up, um, were in agreement that the metric was quantitative. You know, the record industry is dying. Cultural output. And you guys now go, no, look, the cultural output is great. We're doing fine. And the argument has completely shifted to a sort of vibes-based, oh, but culture is flattening. And it is remarkable how many of these things you run into. Kyle Chayka's book, it's a thoughtful book. I enjoyed reading it. But again, my review for, for Reason Magazine is pretty dyspeptic because he says things like, quote, sure, the shows are enjoyable, so enjoyable that I can't stop watching them. (laughs) But I can't name many Netflix-produced shows that have stuck with me. I'm like, that's your complaint? (laughs) He says, Filter World and its slick sameness can produce a breathtaking, near-debilitating sense of anxiety. And he's got a lot of of, uh, company. Uh, Jason Farrago, 
critic for the New York Times says, today, culture remains capable of endless production, but it's far less capable of change. He says, our culture has not been able to deliver step changes for quite some time. When you walk through your local museum's modern wing, starting with Impressionism and following a succession of avant-garde through the development of Cubism, Dada, Pop, Minimalism, in the 1990s, you arrive in a forest called the Contemporary, and after more than 30 years, no path forward has been revealed. I could just go on and on. There was a recent article about <laughs> fashion and Paris Couture Week that complained about the corporatization of inspiration. Ross Douthat, in a book in 2020, talked about how we can have great motion in culture, but it's all just recycling and repetition. He was drawing on the philosopher John Baudrillard. I, I, I just, <laughs> well, this stuff, we are flooded with this stuff. I don't think it's a trivial argument, but I also, it's just, it's vibes. I don't, I don't. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I, I have stuff I could say about that or Mike, I don't know if you want to start. Um, you go first. I I'll, I'll get ready. Yeah. I, I mean, okay. Look, I'll start on the, on the TV example because I watch a fair bit of modern TV and I know people who work in the TV industry. And, and again, to what I said before, the technology and the modes of distribution, they they do influence the art and the culture. So, you know, I think, um, for example, there are people in the TV industry who do complain that Netflix and the other streaming platforms are maybe a little too obsessed with their algorithms and that it stops them from taking risks and that there even are contemporary examples where when they did take risks, it really paid off. And when they were too slavishly uh, devoted to the algorithm, they didn't get, you know, that I think is all an interesting and valid conversation to happen inside the industry. I don't really think it's like an argument against the existence of these technologies or streaming platforms entirely. Right. You know, I mean, if there's a conversation there, we had sure. And, and look, I think certain things about television maybe have been lost that I miss. You know, I think there's ways network TV did things that were interesting and we become stuck in a bit of a creative rut with certain types of streaming shows that could use refreshing. All of this is fine, but all of it frankly is just like, you know, this is a this is a chat at the coffee shop with friends about the way TV gets created. But to say that, you know, and there's interesting ideas in there, but to say that, you know, the culture's flatlined or that nothing memorable or lasting is being created, I just don't even know where you come up with that. I mean, it's so plainly false. Lot People are finding lots of shows memorable. There's lots of, you know, new things that come out that people talk about and are excited by and remember and continue to talk about years later. There's, you know, it was for a while the consensus everywhere that it was the golden age of television and you know and that there's lots of original stuff so and when you say like yeah like it's so enjoyable i can't look away i mean oh well, i don't know did you want them not to make it that enjoy <laughs> i don't know what the question is and and if if some of them feel a little bit by the numbers and just designed to keep you watching with nothing really original to say yeah, sure. I'm sure some of them are. So we're a lot of broadcast television shows. So we have a lot of movies been always and forever, right? I don't know what's new or what, you know. Yeah, I don't know. And, and then as far as the idea that there's nothing avant-garde happening or that, you know, culture has been stagnant for 30 years. I don't know. I mean, does, does anyone really think culture today is the same as it was in 1993? What area of media, like books, movies, TV, I can't think of one of them that's not like pretty different in terms of its tone and sensibilities and what's popular and what gets created, you know, today than in the early nineties. And yeah, yeah, you want avant-garde stuff, go look at, you know, uh, again, there's all these things. I think people easily brush off so many things, right? So if you, yeah, if you are the sort of person who I think some of, maybe not all of, but some of those writers you quoted are, if you are the sort of person who reacts to video game streamers on Twitch and kids doing weird comedy videos on TikTok and all of these other things of internet culture, if you react to all of those with an eye roll and dismissal and sort of refusal to really engage with them or try to understand what might be valuable about them, then yeah, it's going to feel like culture's not changing and nothing new is happening and everything's stagnating. But, you know, to go back to the age thing too, we're all old. And so are, I think, most of the people who wrote those things yeah, it's easy to I, say. I, yeah, <laughs> it's 1969, and you go, "Where's our next Mozart?" And somebody points yeah. out Sergeant Pepper's, and you're like, "Well, but four-piece bands don't count." 
Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing that gets me about this debate is that, you know, there is so much more experimentation going on than, than historically, like, you know, TV, if you go back just a few decades, we had three channels and they were not doing like crazy experimentation. They were trying to figure out what would appeal to the least common denominator of, mm -hmm. of the watchers because they only had so much space and so much time. Whereas yeah. now you have so much experimentation and to say that there aren't unique, new, amazing experimental types of art, like just look around like i don't know there's all sorts yeah. of stuff and even if you go beyond like you know you go to all the streaming channels and all the different shows that are there like just go on youtube and you have people creating just amazing things that no you know no gatekeeper no network was ever going to green light but because they can just go on youtube and create and it could just be completely amateur hour but like you get all of that experimentation and some of it bubbles up and some of it becomes professionalized and, and gets adopted and goes onto networks or streaming channels or whatever. But like, I, I just don't buy it. Like, I think those yeah. that it's, it's just, they're, they're just wrong. I think also and, people have a misunderstanding of uh, the interaction between culture and time. So I would agree that it's kind of amusing that like they're already remaking Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which like wasn't that great of a movie to begin with. And and OK, I had a bit of a laugh at the at the tweets being like, really, like this is our level of redoing things. But the the problem is that's not the way we're going to look at the culture of today 100 years from now. So the fact that the only novel that I can name from 1605 is Don Quixote. Doesn't mean that there wasn't just tons of garbage in 1605 that we have weeded out and nobody reads anymore. And if you think of culture that way, Chuck Klosterman, a writer, is really good on this. Of you know, there were once all of these marching band composers, and now for us, like almost every American, if you were like name a marching band composer, they can name John Philip Sousa, and that is it. And so if a hundred years from now, there's our culture and there's the one TV show or the one movie or the handful. People still might say, oh, it was this flowering of insert, you know, school of art that like it's all so in front of our face that we don't even recognize it or name it. So the fact that I, you know, OK, so back to the future and Ross Douthat points out that the difference between uh, 1955 and 1985 looked greater than between 1985 and 2015, the real 2015, not the movie. Right. I mean, it's pretty trivial. I mean, I'm not saying that's uh, a delusional claim, but the notion that because we don't necessarily see where culture is changing at any given moment does not mean there's some kind of crisis. Yeah, I mean, having just actually watched all three Back to the Future movies, like <laughs> I, I think uh, rewatched. Uh, I, I also think that's that's just silly as well, right? I mean, the differences, like in the movies in particular, like the the differences actually weren't that great. Like they're exaggerated for the for the sake of making the movie. And yeah, that's a good point. The 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 issue is that like the 2015 in the movie is like, you know, they were just making up stuff because it's just like, hey, let's guess what our future is. And I'm sure like if you did the, the same thing, if you were to make remake haha, uh, Back to the Future today where they would go back to, to 1985 or whatever, uh, you know they would portray it as very, very different today. There's no smartphones, there's no internet, the, you know, video games totally different and terrible and all this stuff. You could make that same thing. And then if you were to say, well, what would the, the you know, second one be where you go to 2050 or whatever, I'm sure again, you would get it wrong and you would make all of these crazy assumptions that all of these crazy things, you know, would exist. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't buy that argument either. Yeah, and, that gets, and that's before that we get into like, for all we know, and I, I, I don't know, but AI, we could be on the cusp of a 30 sure. year period that will look like the difference between 1955 and 1975, when yeah, I think you could argue there was a good deal of change. Yeah. I mean, there are moments when culture has these massively accelerated changes and moments when it doesn't, but it is always changing these emotive cultural arguments that are like, ah, you know, the culture's not as good. It's not as, it's like, well, 
sure, have that discussion. It's a great conversation to have. I don't know what you really want anyone to do about it. You can't like force culture to be different. And in as much as the issue is like the money is only available for certain things or the business models promote certain types of content, it's like, well, yeah, that's true and has always been true. Um, you know, it's, you know, you want to talk algorithms. Well, let's talk about like sweeps week on broadcast TV when every show on a certain week in whatever month it is would have to do their big stunt episodes that they advertise, you know, with a celebrity guest or a wedding or whatever, because the numbers for viewers on that one week was what would determine which shows got renewed and which didn't, you know, so like algorithms, quote unquote, have always been uh, influencing what gets made and, and creators who need funding and need money have always had to like find ways to bend what they want to create or find hunt out the person who will pay them to create what they want to create. That's just an ongoing reality. So, so to me, it's just very hard to connect, even if they were correct to connect these like emotive arguments about culture to questions of what you actually want anyone to do about it or to like policy or regulatory or business model questions about the industry, because you know, what are you, what are you going to do? <laughs> I would also point out, at least for people who are on the uh, left of sort of NPR listening or New York Times reading types, you sound like the fogies when you make <laughs> these arguments. You're the back in my day, you're the kids get off my lawn, you're the music's too loud person dissatisfied with culture today because it doesn't necessarily meet your framing. Um, and I find that that interesting. It, it is a theme running throughout Filter World. Sorry, Kyle, to pick on you again. I, I did enjoy the book. That it it is constantly in the sort of language of egalitarianism and, and progressivism while simultaneously being super pretentious and elitist and never wanting to admit that it's doing that, but it's there. Yeah. And I mean, I haven't read it, but I can, I can picture what you're saying for sure. Um, <laughs> Books. Can I just say quickly on the yes and yeah. we'll do a drive-by of this one that I buy physical books. I listen mm -hmm. to books that I can download easily. I listen to audiobooks. It it it's everything. And then plus, like I do the old thing still. I still shop at independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. Uh the the yes and quality is really good with books. Yeah, yeah, no, and and we have in the in the paper, there's been like an increase in independent bookstores over the last few years. There's like all of this, you know, people are still reading books in all different yeah. formats. Uh, and and I think that's really important. Like there was this belief that that, you know, the internet was going to end reading. Um, and and that does not seem to have come to pass. It's it's certainly not like I, I have to pick on Ross Stout that again. He says, quote, <laughs> the philosophical treatise, the hard poem. To the extent that form follows function, these belong to print rather than to screens. <laughs> and it's not remotely surprising that the decline of the fine arts has accelerated under the dominion of the internet. Look, if you want to do a whole podcast picking on Rostos at some time, <laughs> I will join you for that. But if we get started now, we're never going to end here because uh, he's just too it, easy to pick on. Suffice <laughs> it to say, I still scrutinize print books. Again, I'm a grown ass adult. Yeah. You can do both. Okay. And I mean, look, to the just briefly to the bookstore thing, too, it's yet another example of where, look, because bookstores did have a bit of a crisis in the Internet and, mm -hmm. you know, the industry has massively changed. Once again, it's due to something that started well before the Internet started replacing books with ebooks, right? Like the consolidation and like the massive chains putting all the indie bookstores out of business and consolidating everything into these giant big box bookstores was well underway and already almost cemented as the way the industry was going before the ebook revolution and the online reading and Amazon ever happened. And it was in large part because everything had been replaced by these giants that need yearly returns and need, you know, everything and can't like weather a crisis or do something innovative or creative or, you know, that's why it caused such a collapse. Right. And, and, you know, and, and it's funny to get back a little bit to the, the, the discussion I had about journalism earlier, like, you know, the, the independent bookstores that I'm seeing survive and thrive in this market are ones that are like building community. They're adding a cafe and they have, you know, authors come and give readings and all this kind of stuff. And they're focusing on, on things that they can do that is different and beneficial on top of what the internet can do. Yeah. And so there are all these opportunities there if, if people really look for them.
And it's not an area area we cover in the report, though. Maybe we should add it to the playing chapter next time. But just as a random example of another like culture coming out of nowhere, look at board game cafes and board game shops, yeah. you know, which are a thing that a lot of cities have now that are these popular community spaces and a whole creative medium, which again has opened itself up to indie creators. There are successful Kickstarter games that came out of nowhere. We kickstarted a game having <laughs> never made a card game before. You know, the uh, so just another example of like a whole new medium. And that one's not even like something it's it's innately physical. It's very central to the physical environment. People getting together, buying boxes, playing in cafes or at each other's houses. And still a lot of the rise of it is attributable to the Internet, which is where sort of like word started getting out that there were better board games to play than Monopoly. And, you know, that kind of like began a revolution here. You know, so, you know, it's just all these little things for every indie bookstore your city has lost. It maybe has gained an indie board game cafe. And I'm not saying that's a one to one replacement, but it's just these things are always more complicated than whatever thing you want to get nostalgic about. Right. This has been fantastic, guys. I've had so much fun. Do you have any final thoughts about the the report you'd like to share? There's a lot in the report that is worth reading. We we go deep into all different sections on on everything, but you know the 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 one exclamation point is that everywhere we looked, even if there are challenges or there are difficulties in certain parts of the industry, but overall, the cultural industries, the cultural creators, and the cultural consumers are in a better world today than they were in the past. And and almost all of that appears to be because of the internet. The internet is enabling more people to create content, to distribute it, more people to be able to find interesting content that they wanna interact with, whether it's watching, reading, playing, whatever it might be, listening. It's the, the report is just, you know, a compendium of examples of this over and over again with the data to back it up. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Thanks to you both. Go read The Sky is Rising. I will have it in the show notes. It is easy to find on the internet. Uh, Mike Masnick, Lee Beaton of Tech Dirt. I am Corbin Barthold of Tech Freedom. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please go do support the Tech Policy Podcast. You are listening to it on the internet. On the internet, pull up the app or the page for this podcast on the app you're listening to it on. Give it that five-star rating, subscribe, helps us out. While you go do that, I will get started on the next one. Thank you all. Till next time.